Good day and welcome to ESPN's NBA Draft Media Call with Bobby Marks and Mike Schmitz. At this time, I would like to turn the call over to Giannina Thompson. Please go ahead. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining the 2018 NBA Draft Call with ESPN's Bobby Marks and Mike Schmitz. The 2018 NBA Draft will take place in the Barclays Center in Brooklyn on Thursday, June 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern. This will be Bobby and Mike's first appearance with ESPN for the NBA Draft. We'll get started by um, asking a few questions, and I'll make sure to give you guys a heads up on who's next. So we'll start with Gary Washburn from the Boston Globe, followed by Donald Hunt with the Philly Tribune. Hi, guys. Um, Two questions. One, where do you see or what kind of player can the Celtics get at 27, um, and how would you kind of characterize the depth of this draft? Can you get a capable can you get a Kuzma at, at, like last year at, at a 27? And secondly, why has this been, what makes a center draft? This has become a, the draft of the big man. Why did that happen? Is it just timing, just a, a bunch of guys coming up at the same time? Why is this such a, a good, deep big man draft? Yeah, uh, this is Mike Schmitz. Um, I think as far as the bigs, it's just a really good group of bigs. You know, clearly watching the playoffs, things have, have trended away from, um, you know, the more aircraft carrier style bigs. But I think the majority of these ones fit really well in the modern NBA. You know, most of them can switch and block shots and, and shoot threes. Um, so I think, you know, a, a lot of these guys really, really fit in the modern NBA and, and it's it's a good crop, and maybe some of the wings or combo forwards that you would generally think teams would covet more in, in today's era um, aren't quite as intriguing. Uh, as far as the Celtics, I think it's a fairly deep draft. I think there are a lot of guys in that, you know, 20 to 40 range who can really play. Um, and, and to me, you know, there's always going to be a guy like, I mean, not every draft, but there's guys like Kuzma and Donovan Mitchell and, and Jared Allen who, you know, you didn't expect um, so I think there are some of those guys in this draft, uh, you know, whether it's the guys who can shoot or, or protect the rim or, or really facilitate. Um, I, I think this is a very deep draft in that range. Well, I agree with Mike. This is Bobby. Um, I think, Gary, when you, when you look at it, and it's almost broken up into kind of three tiers. We've, we've talked about the bigs, and then there's that, that next tier, which is that, 8 to 11 range, which is the Colin Sexton, the Trey Young, maybe Michael Porter Jr., Kevin Knox. But in that, that 15 to 35 grouping, I mean, we're going to probably see a flurry of twos and threes probably come off the board and uh, board in that range. And if your team like Boston, who probably doesn't have much flexibility this summer cap-wise, um, and more Minnesota or Portland, teams like that, um, you're, you're going to probably get a pretty good rotational player if that's if you want to if you want to get a, a wing. I think it's, it's like ordering off the menu. It's just a matter of kind of which one do you want. Thank you, Donald Hunt from the Philly Tribune. You're up. Okay, um, just like to uh, get your, your impressions on the 76ers and they're picking at number ten and. Who do you see them focusing in on, or who do you think will be available for the Sixers at the uh, number 10 pick? They also have a pick at 26 as well, but uh, give me your thoughts on uh, the Sixers at number 10. 
Yeah, I, I, this is Mike. I think Mikhail Bridges is a name who's who's made some sense. Um, you know, so far throughout the pre-draft process, I think the Sixers could use a, a two-way wing who can defend multiple positions and make a shot. Obviously, with the Villanova connection and then you know his mother working for the team, uh, I, I think it makes a lot of sense there. Um, you know, especially with Brett Brown having an influence in this draft, and and you know, I'm sure hoping to get a guy who can play right away um, and fit with you know Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. I think he's certainly a name that's in play there that makes some sense. I think Lonnie Walker is a guy who will probably get some looks there also. Um, he's an explosive guard from Miami, uh, can really shoot the ball, um, gets up and down in transition. So he's a guy I could also see fitting uh, with their current roster. And, and I think if you take a uh, besides pick 10, you know, Philadelphia also has 26 and they've got four second rounders. And I think, I think 26 is something to probably pay attention to because it has a, a uh, cap value right around $1.7 million that would impact what Philadelphia does this summer. Um, you know, you already got 12 players under contract. I know two are non-guaranteed, but um, is that a, is that a pick or, uh, you know, is there a player there that maybe a team wants? And if you're, if you're looking to try to get off that, you know, that Jared Bayless expiring contract and then the four picks, in the second round, I think the, the one thing you have to remember is that, you know, Philadelphia cannot accept cash in any trade at the, the night of the deadline. So if there's a deal in place, you know, that's not going to happen until after the, you know, the July 6th uh, moratorium. And, you know, unfortunately, this isn't, this isn't the NFL draft where you can kind of keep on loading up on, you know, on, on picks. There, there are some, some roster issues here. But, um, you know, if, I think it's, it's important to watch maybe Philadelphia trade out of the, of the second round. Uh, teams certainly have a lot of value where they are in the, in the late 30s. Um, but there's not, there's not a, I don't see a realistic scenario where, where they're keeping all four second round picks. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. We'll continue with Jeff Zogit from USA Today, followed by Jesse Dowdery from the Washington Post. Hey, Bobby and Mike, it's Jeff. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on Gary's question on the bigs and. You know, what, what is the future of, of the big man in today's NBA? I, I know you guys hit on that a little bit, but is, is that sustainable, you know, for eight, ten years down the road the way the league is right now? I think, you know, for me, you want a big who can switch, who can protect the rim, who can shoot threes and think. You know, ideally, uh, you know, every big man prospect would, would be able to do that, I think, that's the way it's trending. But as you continue to see the teams that are winning play, you know, Clint Capella or even a PJ Tucker at the five. Um, I, I do think that the, the, you know, the smaller lineups are here to stay in some regard um, until, you know, a, a guy who's able to check all those boxes that I mentioned comes along and, and changes that. Um, but as I said, I do think that the bigs we're talking about in this draft um, are playable in the modern NBA. You know, we're not talking about, uh, you know, six Julia Locafors or Al Jeffersons. I think these are guys who really fit for the most part in today's game. No, you're right, Mike. And I, and Jeff, um, you know, just in talking with teams, the, the one thing that kind of stands out is that, you know, the, the bigs up top, you know, you know, we, we know who they are, are really not pigeonholed. You know, they're not a, you know, a, you know, we, we label guy, they're, they're five, you know, they're, the comfort level is that they can play, you know, some can play four and five, you know, the, the ability from a footwork standpoint, 
the athleticism um, that they can guard multiple positions that um, based on how the game is going that come the fourth quarter that you do not have to take them off off the court based on what kind of lineup you have so I don't know if we'll ever revert back to the, you know, the Ewing, the Lajuan type era where we had that traditional uh, Shaq, you know, of course, that traditional five. But these I, these players are now, I guess, your modern your modern five based on their their athleticism and their now they now most of these players have the ability to kind of stretch out their game a little bit. Thank you, guys. Jesse, you're up. Hey, uh, for both Mike and Bobby, just wondering what what ultimately led to Kevin Herter's uh, rise in draft conversations and in draft boards, and also if you guys think that it's overall indicative of sort of how shooters are viewed and valued in today's NBA. Yeah, for me, I think Herter had a lot of fans in the NBA throughout the process that were maybe hoping, uh, you know, he wouldn't get this type of buzz. I think he had a lot of, you know, kind of quiet fans hoping that he would enter or, you know, keep his name in, um, maybe not play at the combine and they could get him at 25 or whatever. Um, but then just seeing him play, you know, at the combine uh, really opened some eyes to maybe some of the people who weren't as high on him coming in, um, you know, didn't Maryland underwhelmed a little bit uh, throughout this past season. And I think seeing him with other players who, who can really play, um, seeing his passing ability, seeing his size and shooting, uh, is really just a perfect fit. And then I think also the interview process, too. I mean, he's blown teams away with just his basketball IQ, his feel for the game, his intangibles. Uh, you know, he's off the charts in all those areas. So I think with the combine and the interview process, he's really helped himself. And I think it's hard for teams to find shooting, you know, either in free agency and it'll likely cost you or in, in the trade market where, you know, it costs you, you know, you have to give up something. And to find value in the draft, if it's in the 20s on a player who's going to make, you know, $2 million for the next four years and you've got them on a controllable contract, I think that outweighs, you know, a team that wants to go out and, and spend 5 or $6 million on a, on a, you know, on a veteran shooter. Thank you. We'll continue with Gordon Jones from Forbes followed by Mark Tracy from the New York Times. Uh, gentlemen, you, you, you mentioned Lonnie Walker in passing. I've seen mocks that have had him anywhere from 9 to the Knicks to 15 to the Wizards. I uh, wondered if you could assess his game and how you feel things might shake out for him on Thursday. Yeah, he's one of my favorite kind of non-consensus top 10 picks in the draft. Uh, I think he's the type of guy who's going to look much better uh, in the NBA than he did in college. You know, he has positional size, he's long, he's explosive. Uh, I think he had a little bit of a slow start to the year just because he had an injury, a knee injury heading into the summer. Uh, but that Miami team had some struggles. They had, you know, a bunch of different guys who were tr- kind of learning how to play with each other. And I think you could see that at times with him. Um, but, I mean, his game really pops. Every move he makes in the perimeter is an NBA move. He can really shoot it on the move. He can shoot it off the dribble. can get out in transition. Um, you know, he has to improve uh, his defensive intensity and his ability to kind of make plays for others and, and think the game at a high level. But, uh, you know, he, he's not quite Donovan Mitchell, but you watch that type of player pop in the NBA. Um, and I think, you know, it's easy to get excited about a guy like Lonnie who's explosive and, and can really shoot the ball in, in a variety of ways. 
And Mike, I think he took, he's a player that's taken advantage of uh, the draft workouts. You know, we saw him out in LA uh, a month ago and he's a, he's somebody who's tested well. Uh, although I'm not a big proponent on, you know, three on three workouts to kind of give a guy, a player grade, but I think there was some uncertainty with Lonnie coming into the draft process as far as where he could fall. I mean, originally we were thinking teens, maybe now it's like he's going to crack the top 14. I think, I think that the individual draft workouts kind of confirmed, um, you know, what a lot of players, a lot of teams thought of him, you know, before he got to Miami. Okay. Thank you. Mark, you're up. Uh, hi guys. Uh, we're looking at a guy like Dante DiVincenzo and, and maybe a couple others, you know, but, but Dante, especially a guy who before the NCAA tournament really even, most people thought he'd just be back at school another year, and now it seems like he's going to be a first-round pick most likely. Is there something about performance and, and stellar performance, especially unexpectedly stellar performance in the NCAA tournament that you think, you know, biases front offices uh, towards players, and do you think that's a, that's a good bias if so? Well, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I think there, I think there are times when we all. I mean, and I think it's just human natural that we get caught up in the NCAA tournament, and a player goes on a on a deep run, um, and you look at that body of work, and that that stands out. Maybe an owner starts to to chime in here. I think in the case of, of Dante, certainly had a strong tournament, um, had a you know good year, and then when he went to the the pre-draft camp really stood out playing five on five. Um, and that, that kind of clinched it there as far as right. uh, him coming out. I, I think, you know, you can say, make the argument, well, would he have come out if he was a second round prospect? I, I think he would have based on, you know, where, you know, it's not, it, it's not the end of the world if you don't get drafted in the first round these days, based, based, just based on, right. on where your contracts, you know, how you can structure uh, your contracts here. But, yeah, there there is some bias towards players that um, you know that have a strong. Uh, we saw it with uh, Malachi Richardson from Syracuse a couple years ago, um, had a mm-hmm. strong tournament and then gets picked in the uh, you know in the, in the first round when a lot of us probably didn't know where he was going to fall. But um, but there is some some type of bias that it's just I think it's just human human natural. Yeah, I, I agree with Bobby, and I think it's it's hard to evade that that bias in Dante's case. I do think that, you know, he had some buzz coming into the season. He played at Adidas Nations uh, in the summer in Houston, you know, with Mikhail Bridges and, and Robert Williams and Michael Porter and a lot, of, a lot of really good prospects, and he fit right in, you know, and I think it was really at that point you said, okay, this kid really has a chance to be in the NBA. Um, and I think we kind of had him as a fringe first-round guy, you know, even prior to the NCAA tournament stuff. Um, so he's, you know, he's built a case for himself, uh, not just off, you know, one big game, um, but I think that certainly, you know, has earned him some fans in front offices because people like, you know, people like prospects who can shine when the lights are bright, and he's proven he's capable of doing that. Thanks, guys. We'll continue with Bruce Pasco from Arizona Daily Star, followed by Joe Varden from Cleveland.com. Uh, hey, hey, guys. Uh, this particularly for Mike. I was just wondering, um, you know, we, about uh, Alonzo Trier and Raleigh Alkins. If they, you think they've made any progress in the in the the workout, uh, you know, scenario this spring, especially. I mean, I've heard that Alkins maybe is helping himself a little bit, but I haven't heard a thing about Trier. And just wondering if you have. Yeah. Hey. Good to good to chat with you, Bruce. Um, 
Alkins, I think, has helped himself. Uh, I think, you know, he's a guy you can look at in that mid-second round. Um, you know, he's powerful. Uh, he can make a shot. He's explosive in space, pretty competitive defender. Uh, I, I think he's a guy you could – you know, I would be surprised if he doesn't get drafted. Um, and then Alonzo, I think he really helped himself at his pro day, you know, he, and that's, kind of, that's a good setting for him. Um, showed off some of his explosiveness and his scoring ability, uh, and I think teams left that, you know, wondering if he's a guy they, they should uh, take another look at. Um, and I think he's probably going to get some looks um, in the 50s. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a lock that he gets drafted. I, I would be surprised if Alkins went below Trier. Um, but, you know, I think he has, a, he has a chance to hear his name called in the 50s. Yeah. Do you figure he kind of is a two-way kind of contract player, regardless of whether he gets picked or not? Or Yeah, that's kind of my, my thought with him, yeah. Yeah. Um, and is there, I mean, I guess I'm wondering with Alonzo, too, is there anything, you know, reason why he's kind of hanging there? To, you know, is it because he's, he is what he is kind of thing. He's an older junior or, or because a lot of guys can do what he does or what, what do you think is kind of holding him back? I guess. If anything. Yeah, I think there's a lot of guys and some guys in the G league like him, some guys in the Europe, in Europe like him. Uh, I think he just needs to continue to prove that he can make other guys better around him. Um, you know, there is value in scoring and no doubt about that, but uh, just becoming a more well-rounded player defensively, making his teammates better, uh, and then being, you know, consistently coachable. I think that's important for him, too. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thanks, Mike. Joe, yeah, you're, you're out. Bobby, as a, as a former GM, um, just how difficult you think um, the job Kobe has to try to make this pick without knowing what LeBron is going to do. And then the question for both of you guys is if you look at all these mocks, um, you know, the, 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 the selections for the Cavs are kind of all over the place. Um, I'm just maybe interested in maybe the three guys you think maybe have the best chance of, of landing there at eight with the Cavs. Yeah, Joe, I mean, it's, I mean, you're kind of, you're, I guess you're walking into the wilderness of the unknown where you are at Eddie and how do you block out uh, the draft compared to LeBron's decision, you know, eight days later and how do you try to separate it? I think the hard part for, for Kobe would come where what happens when there is a potential trade that is presented to him and he can bring back, you know, players, NBA level players, if that's the case that maybe happens Thursday night. And how do you go about doing it without a commitment from LeBron? And how do you how do you get him? You know, how do what's the communication line between the front office and LeBron to run um, a scenario like that? Uh, and I and I think there has to be some type of communication um, with with that um, where they go at eight. Um, and I think Mike will probably chime in there. But you know, you are looking at players that can come in and help you now, probably with a player like Colin Sexton. Or a player that maybe could help you two years from now, and Michael Porter Jr., who if he's still if he's still there, that it's probably going to take him a little bit of time based on coming off coming off that injury. But yeah, this is not a uh, this is not an easy uh, an easy draft from for Kobe because retaining the pick is basically your selling point to <clears throat> to LeBron going into um, you know going into the off season. 
as well as maybe something you can do with some of those, you know, the Kyle Corvers, the uh, J.R. Smith, um, George Hill players that have some small guarantees, and how do you, you know, move, move that around? Yeah, and I think for the Cavs, it's, it's really going to depend on, you know, where Porter goes. Um, if Porter goes higher than expected, is he going to push a guy like Wendell Carter down to them? I'm sure who they, they would love to have at eight. And then Bobby mentioned, you know, two of the guys that are probably in the mix there with, with Sexton and, and Porter. Um, you know, I think they'll probably give the other two point guards looks in terms of Trey Young and, and Gilgis Alexander if they're on the board. Um, one name I wouldn't rule out is Kevin Knox. I think he's a guy who's really helped himself in this pre-draft process. You know, with Kentucky guys, you kind of want to see them away from that uh, that setting at times. You know, we saw it with a guy like Devin Booker, who's really popped with freedom in the NBA. Um, you play such a specific role at Kentucky, and I think with Kevin, people are seeing a you know an 18-year-old, six foot nine kid who who has length and, and can score in a variety of ways. So um, I, I do think that he's another guy who will probably get a long look there. Thank you. We'll continue with Darnell Mayberry from The Athletic, followed by Tom Osborne from the San Antonio Express News. Hey, guys. Thanks for doing this. Uh, my question is for Mike. Mike, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, seemingly obsession that Bulls fans have with Michael Porter Jr. here in Chicago, but uh, for some reason sure. they just love this kid, and I was wondering if you were aware of that and where do you think that comes from, uh, that obsession? Yeah, uh, I, I have been, you know, made aware that you, you know you can go on the internet and see it, and I think the team also has been high on him for some time as well. Um, but you know, it, it's just really a matter of of the medical stuff with him. Uh, you know, obviously he's he's working out. He spends a lot of time working out in Chicago. His his agent Mark Bartelstein is based there, and um, but yeah, I mean, I just think it's a product of being enamored with his talent more than anything. Uh, just he, he's a kid who was at one point, you know, before Marvin Bagley reclassed, was the number one player in his class. He was an absolute stud on the EYBL circuit. He was outstanding at Nike Hoop Summit, McDonald's All-American. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, people really thought had a chance to be number one, the number one pick in the draft. Um, but, you know, there are clearly a lot of question marks with him in, in terms of his health, in terms of his durability, uh, his toughness, you know, his ability to play with others. Um but, yeah, I mean, he, he's an interesting guy. You know, I think we're all enamored with him just because we don't know where he's going to go in the draft. You know, I think he's, he's really the wild card here to me. Thanks, Mike. You're up, Tom. Hey, good afternoon, guys, and thanks for doing this. Um, with the Leonard situation, you know, the Spurs have a lot of variables in play. What do you guys think they should do, especially in terms of getting the most out of this year's draft or – or maybe should the focus be on future picks? Well, I think for one thing, I think they're going to be, they're going to be take a conservative approach when it comes to Kawhi. I don't think, I don't anticipate them rushing into anything, even with what broke on, uh, on, on Friday. Um, the, the hard part would be, um, William, we all know Kawhi's situation on an expiring contract, the uh, content as far as the receiving team, if he ever is moved, you know, do you have a comfort level that dictates as far as to sign him to, um, you know, as far as to, you know, bring him back as far as what you get in a trade? I think where they are at 18, um, you know, there are a lot of teams, you know, in that 
uh, you know, Atlanta at 30, that has multiple picks. Uh, they've got, uh, Atlanta's got 19 also. Um, is there a scenario where you maybe, you maybe move back in the, move back in the draft, um, to get multiple picks just to base, with the build up, you know, some of your younger players, but they've got, you know, in San Antonio, there's a lot of decisions besides Kawhi. I mean, we have, we don't know yet with Rudy or, um, or Danny Green. Uh, I, I would say the likelihood is that probably Green opts in and, and Gay probably opts out. Um, and then with all your free, restricted free agents. So the, the cupboard is starting to be a little bit bare um, there. So if you can, if you can pick up more picks, I think that's a, that's a, you know, certainly a, you know, a scenario you should look at. Yeah. And I think you can get quite a bit of value at 18 too. Um, you know, like I said I, before, I think this is a fairly deep draft, uh, you know, whether it's another guard or, or a bigger wing um, there's a lot of those type of guys out there uh, who could fit the Spurs system as well. I mean, very, very skilled, type, skill-oriented players. Uh, Kevin Herter is a name, Jerome Robinson. Um, you know, those guys, you know, potentially on the board at, at 18. So I do think you can get some value there to add to uh, DeJounte Murray, uh, uh, Derek White, and some of those young names. Thanks, guys. We'll continue with Akshay Merchandani from Dallas Morning News, followed by Rod Walker from the New Orleans Advocate. Hi, guys. Um, so with the Mavericks having the fifth pick, what are the chances um, that Luka Doncic could fall to the number five spot, and how would he fit in for the Mavs? And then also, are the Mavs a team that could be a candidate to move their pick to take on um, – a bad contract to get another lottery pick, or uh, how do you see them working in the trade market? Yeah, I, I can uh, touch on, on Doncic here. I think it's not out of the realm of possibilities that he's there at five, um, which is pretty crazy to say just given everything he's done. But, you know, if if Porter does kind of leapfrog and go higher than people think, then that could push him back. Um, you know, it would surprise me if he, he got past Memphis, but – uh, you know, there's also the question of, you know, does his camp want him there uh, in Memphis? So, um, you know, I do think it's it's somewhat of a possibility, and I, I really like his fit there. I think with with Rick Carlisle and his ability to use multiple ball handlers, um, get creative on the offensive end. Uh, he he does benefit from having some explosiveness next to him in the half court. So I think a guy like Dennis Smith, if he can learn to play, you know, also without the ball at times. That could be a fit there. And then just the veteran presence, too, you know, having a Dirk, um, internationally born guy who, who's been through this transition, having a, you know, a J.J. Barea and, and a Wesley Matthews and a Harrison Barnes. Um, to me, Doncic with, with uh, Dallas is one of the more natural fits uh, for him in that top five. And, and I think where Dallas is, I mean, they still have, uh, what, $14 million in, in cap space. Um, I, I think. You are, if, and that will go to waste, you know, come, you know, when the new calendar year starts July 1, if you are, if you can take back contracts and get first round picks to do so, I think that's certainly something to look at, especially if it's, even if it's going to eat into your, you know, where you are, 18, 19 um, flexibility. Just based on this is not a, um, this is not a great free agent class outside of the main the main players up top, the LeBron James, the Paul George, the Chris Pauls. Um, this is a, uh, I guess I call it a tier B free agent class where, um, and, and then maybe you use, you roll your over room to 19. So I think there's, I think there could be an opportunity for, for Dallas. I think there's teams like Denver 
with we've heard an intent freed where um, that's an, uh, an expiring contract that would help the Nuggets based on the Jokic likely max contract that we'll, we'll see eventually. Um, but yeah, I think you you have an opportunity if you do have the room based on what type of contract that is that's going to come back. Thank you, guys. Rod, you're up. Okay. Hey, guys, I wanted to ask you about uh, Mitchell Robinson. Um, just, you know, what do you like about him, some things he needs to work on, and also just his decision to not um, play, you know, a year of college ball. How much does that affect him, and if that's something you think we'll see more often down the road from other guys? Yeah, to me, he's, I mean, he's one of the more intriguing prospects from a physical standpoint. You know, seven one, seven four wingspan. He, unbelievable agility for a player his size, and and we've seen him not look out of place alongside you know some of these guys at the top with DeAndre Ayton, with Mo Bamba. You know, whether it's at the Jordan Brand or McDonald's or even on the EYBL circuit. I mean, I've seen him play against those guys and more than hold his own. Um, you know, he was unbelievable at the AAU circuit. Uh, the questions with him are not you know what what happens on the court. I think it's. Uh, his approach to the game and and continuing to be consistent with that. Um, also, you know, being able to, I think, retain all the different defensive schemes or or offensive sets and, and pick things up quickly. Um, those are all questions for him. And obviously, you know, the the route he took, um, you know, maybe didn't completely help him in that regard. Uh, you know, to me, he's a guy. It might take him you know, in, until his second team or, or something like that, to full, maybe even third, to fully maximize his potential. Uh, but if he lands in the right situation with veterans and and a, a really, you know, strict schedule on, hey, this is what you're doing, this is how we want you to play, um, you know, then he has a chance to be, you know, really impactful in the NBA. We'll continue with Marla Reidenauer from the Akron Bacon Journal, followed by Mike Cartesano with NBC Sports Boston. Uh, hi, guys. Um, I'm, I have a couple quick ones. One, the way Oklahoma finished the season, do you think that would – is there any chance that would call, cause Trey Young to maybe fall to the Cavs? And the other thing was – they do seem to have such a need at point guard. Do teams draft for need anymore? Mike, you take the first one. I'll take the second one. Yeah. 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 Um, I do think that, you know, it, you, you have to take Oklahoma's struggles toward the end of the season with a grain of salt, I think, when, especially in relation to Trey Young. Um, I mean, teams were face guarding him almost 94 feet. And the level of talent around him, you know, was, was not great. I mean, we've seen it with, with Ben Simmons and with Markel Fultz. And uh, teams value winning. There's no doubt about that. But if they see a talent that they're enamored with, they're not afraid to go get him if he didn't win in college. Um, with that said, I do think, uh, you know, some of his struggles in terms of efficiency, um, in terms of making winning plays consistently, uh, I mean, really dropped off toward the end of the season. So, uh, and just the physical aspect of holding up over an 82-game season, I think, is, is certainly a question with him. Um, but, you know, I, I don't put – I don't write him off because his team didn't go deep into the NCAA tournament. Yeah, and the, the rule of thumb is usually you draft best available. The, the common theme is that you, you, you go into the night of the draft with your, 
your big board that's ranked, you know, one to 60, and that is how you are drafting. I think where things change a little bit is it based on if you are in need of a point guard and that player um, is at number nine and you are at number eight and that player who's still at number eight is on the board, how much of a difference is there? How much of a separation um, is there between the two picks that you can justify picking a player like Colin Sexton um, instead of a player like, um, you know, Michael, let's say Michael Porter Jr., for example. Is there enough separation there? And if, if Porter Jr. has been the talent level where there is, then you take on, you take the best, you take the best available, even though there is, even though there is a need there. Thanks so much. All right, you're up. Mike Mike Cartesano from NBC Sports Boston. Do you have a question? All right, we'll move on with Rick Bono from the Charlotte Observer, followed by Jerry Tipton from the Lexington Herald. Hey, Bobby, um, could you talk a little about whatever's going on with Jay Gilgis Alexander going off the grid and in connection to that, um, does it does it matter to NBA teams if players decide not to not to do workouts these days? Rick, it, it, it shouldn't matter. I mean, I, I think there's enough body of work for players in college that we've seen either in one year if they've you know if they've been healthy to you know to get a clear evaluation than bringing a player in and having him go one on zero. I think the where we probably miss out a little bit if a player does not come in is that the kind of you let your coaching staff kind of touch that player where um, you feel you can see how coachable he is, um, get him on the court, um, and, and have him you know walk through with your with your coaching staff as far as from set, you know get him out to dinner, get a get a good interview if you hadn't done it yet in, in Chicago. Um, you already have the background on them. You already got the medical on them. So I, I and I've been in a, in New Jersey where we've, we've draft, drafted players that never came in for for a workout. So I don't know if you, if you're an organization, you can hold that against the player. Um, when, it, when in regards to Shea, I, I think the the mindset is that you know his agent has you know a, a list of players that he wanted to work out against. You know the Colin Sexton's, the, the Trey Youngs there. Um, those players did not, uh, from what I understand, did not do any workouts against another player, um, and that's where you know where that's where it comes in. He he wasn't going to send him. And, and no offense to um, you know Aaron Holiday, players like that who project to go in that eighteen to thirty range. He wasn't going to send them into with that with uh, with that that type of group. So I, I wouldn't probably make too much into it that he's got a guarantee somewhere. Um, but um, but that usually is the mindset. You you line up certain players that you want to work out against and if they're not those players will not work out against you then you usually kind of you kind of pull back so you do not think that there might be a promise um in the background of this i don't i don't think there is a promise thanks now don't hold me to that (laughs) i get it thanks thanks for the help jerry you're up 
Uh, yeah, for both you guys, uh, especially Michael. If I heard you right, you said earlier that uh, with Kentucky guys, you want to see them away from Kentucky, uh, I guess, in another setting. And I wondered what you meant by that. Yeah, I just think most Kentucky guys, you know, they have so much talent that Cal puts them in a very specific role. You know, with Carl Towns, you see him now, he's a stretch big. I don't know how, I mean, you probably count on, on one or two hands how many threes he took at Kentucky. Um, so, you know, unless you saw him in high school or went to a workout, uh, you didn't really see him in that setting. Uh, same with Devin Booker. He was, you know, they had other ball handlers, the Harrison Twins and, and uh, Tyler Ulis. They had guys who could handle the ball. So Devin Booker's role was to catch and shoot, uh, you know, sprint off screens and probably not put it down more than one or two times in a possession. Um, and then you put him in a spot like Phoenix where, uh, you know, they're a losing team and, and they need him to have the ball in his hands and he, he blossoms into the player he is today, you know, playing pick and roll and, and creating his own shot. Um, so I think, you know, these Kentucky teams are so loaded that it's really beneficial to see these guys in a different environment. And just as a follow, I was going to say it would seem like, uh, of course, Kentucky's had so many guys drafted very high that uh, just because you, I don't know if this is overstating it, but you could say, well, they're, they're kind of, their games are stifled to a degree, yet it doesn't seem to hurt their uh, draft stock. What do you make of all that? Yeah, I think, you know, teams have seen these guys prior to Kentucky a lot of times as well. You know, Kevin Knox played. Uh, heavy minutes at, on the USA basketball circuit. Shea Gildas-Alexander played at, at Nike Hoop Summit. Um, you know, people have seen these guys in different settings as well. And, you know, there's usually a reason why they're at Kentucky, because they have the measurables and they have the talent. Um, so, you know, I, I think teams have a good feel for what they can do also going into their season. Um, but it's just, from their perspective, maintaining the idea that you know, there there probably is a little bit more there that they were than they were able to show at the collegiate level. Thanks. So we'll continue with Charles Holliman from the Minnesota Spokesman Recorder, followed by James Hawkins with Detroit News. Yes, thank you. This is for both of you. And just in terms of you talk you, you talk a lot about the draft and now they, the NBA has came up as suggesting that they maybe make some changes with it down the road. Will that have an impact, not just on this draft, but will teams look at differently how they will make decisions? And then just uh, has the draft changed to the point where it's no longer need, but it's almost potential, and where they look at long-term, and therefore they, some teams miss out sometimes? Well, I, I think in regards to um, you know the potential of, drafting high school players, you know, in a, in a couple of years, I think, I think that will weigh heavily on teams trading future draft picks, um, kind of not knowing if the next big star is going to be a, you know, a 14 year old kid who's playing high school basketball right now. And to, to do that where, um, you know, to take that chance, I don't think teams are going to do that because we don't know what the rules are going to be. So, yeah, I think, I think it's going to impact how teams approach trading um, future draft picks or how they approach putting, you know, what type of, um, you know, protection on, um, you know, protection on the pick. All right, we'll continue with James. Hey, guys, appreciate your time. Um, I have a two-part question about Michigan big man uh, Mo Wagner. 
Um, first off, I guess, what type of environment or situation do you guys think would uh, be the best the best fit for him? And then two, um, aside from his ability to kind of stretch the floor, I guess, what else is it about his skill set that's uh, alluring for NBA teams? Yeah, I think he's going to be good in a situation where he has versatile defenders around him um, and, a, and a point guard who, you know, can put him in position to succeed. Uh, you know, I think that's probably the biggest question for him is his ability to defend in space. So having other guys who can kind of pick up the slack there, I think is going to be important. Um, you know, teams really like his competitiveness, his moxie. He's he's a guy who every time you see him working out in the gym, he's, he's drenched in sweat. He goes hard all the time. Um, he has kind of a, a, a very magnetic personality to him. And he's, you know, near seven feet tall and he can shoot and he can actually put the ball down a little bit as well. Um, so I think teams like that aspect of him. It's just a matter of how many minutes is he going to be able to give you uh, because he, he is a little bit limited on the defensive end. All right, we'll continue with Raina Sabin of Alabama.com, followed by Andrew Husey from Indianapolis Star. Raina, are you there? Um, uh, yes, um, I, I just wanted to get your overall evaluation of uh, Colin Sexton and uh, uh, whether you think he, his body type can withstand the rigors of an uh, 82-game season and, and the playoffs. Yeah, me personally, uh, I, I don't have any questions about his body type. Um, you know, maybe he doesn't weigh 200 pounds, but he's he's strong and he plays strong, uh, and he's maybe the most competitive player in the draft uh, in terms of being a willing defender. He doesn't shy away from contact. I mean, he got to the free throw line, you know, over 10 times per 40 minutes, um, which is kind of speaks to his aggressiveness and his, his yearning for physicality. So, um, yeah, from, you know, while he's not 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan, I, I do think, um, you know, he plays strong and, and he's, he's uh, very competitive. Any more questions at that one? No, I'm, 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 I'm good. Thank you. Okay. Angie, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Uh, who do you think the Pacers will be select, uh, selecting at the 23rd pick? They've been linked to a bunch of different guards so far. I mean, obviously, you know, grooming grooming a young guard is is probably a priority for them. Um, I think you could look at a guy like Aaron Holiday, um, who you know plays both ends. He's really tough. He, he can shoot it. I mean, if he's if he's somebody who's available, um, I think he's he's a guy who would who would make a lot of sense. I think it's really going to come down to who's in the mix there. Um, you know, even a guy like Kevin Herter, who I think can can play some point guard. Same with Jerome Robinson. Um, you know, those would be kind of potential no-brainers for them if they're on the board. Um, and then you could also go with, you know, kind of a more seasoned guy if you want to take a Javon Carter type, you know, who's who's tough and, and competitive um, and, and can really defend. And then there's also, a, you know, a Jalen Brunson um, who's, you know, maybe not the most athletic guy but uh, has high intangibles, high IQ, can, can shoot it, tough-minded kid. Um, so I think – you know, point guard makes sense for them at that spot, but it's all when you're in that, you know, 20, 25, 30 range, 
it's to me it's kind of dependent on you know who's available yeah i agree with mike i mean even if even though you do have um darren collison and and cory joseph and you know, both guys will be <clears throat> expiring contracts will be free agents in, in 2019 so you usually draft for the future um you know even if there's not a even if there's not a need right there and if if it's not point guard that's you know, it's kind of going back to that point where you have a you know you've got a, a bounty full of, of twos and threes um you know in that range where, where indiana is We have a couple more. We we may not get to everyone, but just want to let everyone know that we also have a media call with Jay Billis tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern, um, and we'll also have a transcript of this call. So, again, if we don't get to you, we still will have the transcript and another call tomorrow. So we'll continue with Steve Popper from The Record, followed by Kyle Austin from MLive.com. Hey, uh, hey, Bobby, this, this really for you, I guess, as an executive, just how much do you measure in uh, when you talk to these college kids? You know, we're not one and done, but but you know, just age twenty one versus eighteen. Like when you look at, for example, like a Knox versus a Mikel Bridges, how how much difference in potential do you see a guy developing in that age? Like, do you see twenty ones with still a, a potential? Do you see eighteen as you got you've got to project? Well, Steve, I think you know we you get into that tendency where Everyone is looking for that 18- and 19-year-old kid that can be the next Giannis that you can kind of mold into how you you want that player to be instead of maybe taking the next. And I'm not saying, you know, um, you know, Mikael Bridges um, is, you know, is, is Draymond Green or you, where you're taking a player that has been in school, um, you know, is maybe a little bit a little bit older there where maybe the upside is not there. I think that's where – I think that's where you get in trouble a lot when you start looking at an age, maybe an older player that you bypass based on you know what he is, and instead of a, a Kevin Knox that maybe you, you think you do, but projecting projecting out. Yeah. I, I guess the same for Mike, too. Just Do you see, uh, when you're judging these guys, a big difference in that, that small age gap there? A big difference from like the veteran guys to the younger guys? Yeah, a guy who's played two, three years versus a guy who's either either you know one and done or even like a Porter who only played a couple of college games. Yeah, I think it depends. You know, some guys develop at a much slower rate. Like Mikael Bridges, uh, you know, we weren't talking about him as a surefire top ten pick last year. You know, it really he really needed three years to get stronger and to improve as a shooter and do those things. Whereas you know, a guy like uh, you know Marvin Bagley can come in and just put up. 20 and 10, no problem. All right, let's go to the NBA and do this. Um, so I think it's it's dependent on every single player. Um, even you look back at like a Kyle Kuzma. I mean, you know, we all want to say, oh, you know, his situation was poor and screwed him and, and yada yada, and they played him a certain way at Utah. But the reality is, I mean, he wasn't ready to be a one and done. You know, he was a late bloomer who who needed his time at Utah. So for me, it's it's very uh, dependent on each and every kid. Great. Thanks very much, Chris. All right, Kyle, you're up. All right, thanks, guys. Uh, question about uh, Jaron Jackson at Michigan State. Uh, just wondering how you guys project him. If you see him as somebody that can contribute as a rookie or he's a guy that's going to have to take a little bit longer, um, you know, to be a, a major contributor in the NBA? Uh, yeah, for, for me, I think – 
he'll be able to impact the game um, in his rookie season in terms of, you know, bringing energy and, and blocking shots and switching screens and, and making an occasional three. But, you know, if you look, I mean, he's one of the youngest players in the draft. He played only 20 minutes per game at Michigan State, and he, he struggled with foul trouble. Um, so I think you're going to have probably some wow games where he hits three threes and blocks five shots and, and guards on the perimeter, you know, against like a Dame Lillard or C.J. McCollum and then other games where he picks up three fouls in the first six minutes and, you know, gives you a goose egg. So uh, I do think it's going to take him a little bit of time um, to, to kind of maximize who he is. But that's, you know, that's what you get with 18-year-olds. All right, we'll continue with um, Jace Fredrickson from St. Paul Pioneer Press, followed by Dylan Finn with the Journal-Gazette. Hello, are you there, Jace? Okay, we'll continue with Dylan, and we'll just have one more after that. Yeah, I, uh, I was. I wanted to ask about uh, Dakota Mathias out of Purdue, who has uh, had some buzz the last few weeks about maybe being a second-round pick. What have you guys heard about him, and, and uh, do you think there's a chance that he gets drafted in that, uh, that second round? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I think he's probably a guy who would go undrafted. Um, if he's going to make it to the NBA, it's going to be probably more in the TJ McConnell route. You know, 61, choose your situation, go to camp, improve yourself there. Um, a lot of these second round guys, you're looking at, you know, guys with, with length and upside and, and some intrigue, uh, you know, potential two way candidates in, in the, the 50s. Um, so to me, he seems more like a guy who's, who's going to be an undrafted training camp guy. Um, but, I mean, you know, he's proven himself at the NCAA level. He can really shoot the ball. I think he's probably a better defender than people think. He has a good feel for the game. Um, so probably, you know, at the very least, a, a future EuroLeague player. Um, but not, not someone I would expect to get drafted in the second round. Thank you. All right, and we'll um, end with Andrew Valencourt from Wolverine.com. Hey, guys, uh, this could go for either of you, but just to follow up again on Mo Wagner, who was asked about earlier, uh, do you guys see him as a first-round pick, and is there a team that you guys think he would fit in well with? Uh, I, you know, I think he's he's probably a fringe guy. Um, it wouldn't shock me if he went, you know, in that 25 to 30 range. Uh, you know, we have him more in the, in the mid-30s. Um, it, you know, I think he's going to fit with most teams, unless they're a team that switches every ball screen and, and needs their big man uh, to be that type of guy. Um, but, you know, I do think with his, his experience and he has an NBA skill, um, he's going to be able to play a role, you know, during his rookie season, wherever he ends up. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think his range is all over the place. I mean, he's been in Washington twice uh, working out for the 15th pick um, but he's also had, you know, work. You know, he's kind of filled the board with workouts in that, in that twenty-five to thirty range. Also, I, I would be surprised if he, if he, you know, goes to Washington at, at, at fifteen. But I, I agree, with Mike. I think he is. I think he is a fringe, uh, you know, fringe first-round pick. Thanks, guys. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, everyone, for attending this call. I appreciate it, Bobby and Mike, for also doing this. I know right this week and these past few weeks have been extremely busy for you guys. So taking that time, we really do appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and we'll also have the transcript and a recording of the call on ESPN Media Zone in a few hours later this afternoon. And again, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern, we'll have another media call with Jay Billis. Thanks, everyone.